Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it. You love it. It is Victory Lane, back in the comfort of my own home in Rockville, Maryland, after a wonderful six or so month sabbatical stay in Delaware. Today, episode 77, we are paying homage to a lot of people. I'll let my dad explain. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to this week's Way Back When segment. Today we remember an early NASCAR pioneer. A robust 940 Cup Series starts for number 77. Two wins for the number and four poles. The 77 is in active use today and actually has been used by nine different drivers so far in the 2020 season. I wonder what the record is for how many times a single number has been used by different drivers in a single year. Hmm. Robert Presley tops the list of drivers fielding car 77 the most. He ran the number 133 times between 1997 and 2001, but never won. You might remember his blue Jasper engines livery. Other notables who drove number 77 include Sam Hornish with 106 starts and Dave Blaney with 76. The two wins for 77 came nearly 60 years apart. Justin Haley won the rain-shortened Firecracker 400 at Daytona in the 77 in 2019. And nearly 60 years before that, Joe Lee Johnson took his number 77 Chevy to victory lane at the Nashville 300. Johnson no relation to Junior or Jimmy, was an early NASCAR pioneer. He raced in the inaugural Daytona 500 and the beach course races before then. Joe Lee's biggest win came at the inaugural World 600 at the brand-new Charlotte Speedway in 1960. In that race, the freshly laid asphalt at the new track started to come apart. Today, they'd red flag the race and fix it, not back then. Johnson had to steer his way around holes in the track before taking the checkered flag. He won that day by four laps over Johnny Beauchamp. Remember him from a few weeks ago? Johnson also had a hand in current Daytona 500 qualifying. Did you know NASCAR used to have a series devoted exclusively to convertibles? It did from 1956 until 1959, and Jolie Johnson won that series championship in 1959. Back in that day, the convertibles often raced against the hardtop cars in the same race. In 1959, for the inaugural Daytona 500, 20 of the 59 cars were ragtops. Maybe because of that, there was one qualifying race for convertibles and one for the hardtop Grand National cars. The convertibles are long gone, but the dual qualifying races format for Daytona 500 qualifying stuck and remains with us to this day. 
And finally, we give an honorable mention to one of Davy's favorite basketball players. George Murison wore the number 77 for the Washington Bullets, the Boulet, as we used to call them, from 1993 through 1997. He was and remains the tallest NBA player ever. Can you guess his height? Today's episode and his number give it away. Yes, he stood a whopping seven foot seven inches, slightly taller than another DC Boulet legend, Minute Bowl. Davy, can you imagine the sight of Gheorghe trying to squeeze himself into a Cup Series car or even just go from room to room in his house? Mama Siegel says that he just bought a house in our hometown. I hope his ceilings are high. Who knows? Maybe we'll see him at the grocery store. That's all for this week, my boy. Back to you. Thank you, Dad. And don't worry, listeners. I have told him to cut it down. I need it to be shorter. So, Dad, if you're downstairs and you hear me right now, or if you're listening after the fact, listen, minute 32 minutes tops. Let's try to aim for that next week, all right? This week, we will recap the rainy weekend at the Roval, preview Kansas to kick off the round of 12, and star of the show, speak with Michael Self. Started, as always, with a good old-fashioned Charlotte Roval and round of 12 recap. But in order to do that, we need to talk about what we saw on Saturday, the Xfinity Series race. Not only was it in the rain, it was in a torrential downpour. It was a monsoon. It was very fun to watch. It was crazy that they actually were able to race in it, and they finish it off. So many different spins, so many different accidents. Everybody was okay, of course. So fun to watch, within reason, though. And I like this type of racing, like, once in a blue moon, because Part of me is like, well, I don't want this as a cutoff race. But part of me is like, well, we never really see this, so it's fine. But who wins it after all the spinning, all the craziness? You know it. It's the dinger. AJ Allmendinger outlasted everybody else in the crazy, crazy conditions that he frankly thought were a bit unsafe. The racetrack like it is today, I mean, there's, it's just no matter what car you're in, it's going to be uh, pretty hectic trying to drive it. I kind of relate it back to... 2019 Rolex, uh, we had nasty conditions, and and uh, when I was driving for for Mike Shank and, and Meyer Shank Racing, we were leading the GTD class with a couple hours to go, and it was the same weather. I mean, you're just hydroplaning everywhere. You're almost coming to a stop in certain corners because the car is just kind of floating away. Uh, so, you know, these cars are fun to drive in the wet because they slide around so much and and they move and they're big and heavy, and you can kind of like use throttle to help turn and et cetera. But um, yeah, in conditions like this, there's, there's no car that's very enjoyable to, uh, to drive. So we turn around the next day and we had the cup race, which started on wet weather tires for the first time ever in a cup race. The only other times that cup cars used rain tires were at Suzuka in Japan and Watkins Glen. Both were in qualifying and practice sessions. So they never had them during an actual race. And I loved the beginning of this race, the first stage to be particular, because there were differing strategies. There were wet weather tires. There were dry slicks. You had Ty Dillon weaving his way through the field, won the first stage because their team opted to put on the dry tires first, and they were so much faster than everybody. 
Clint Boyer was trying to stay out on the old ones, the wet ones, that is. They were blistering a little bit because there was no moisture. People were going in puddles to try to get moisture in the tires. They were going in different lanes on the turns to get wet, um, you know, rain in the tires. It was amazing. I'm, I'm talking all over myself, but what I'm trying to say is that it was a really good show, and I really enjoyed watching it, and I hope that we get it sometime soon, again, in the Cup Series, but I doubt that we will. So then the track dries out. Slicks are put on by pretty much everybody, but it was a change. I, I loved it. It you know, once everybody put on the slicks, it was kind of your typical Roval race, which is crazy. But before that, it was so intriguing to see who was better on which tire. You know, the people that decided to stay on the wet one, where they were going and why they were playing that strategy the way they were. I really, really liked it. And at road courses in general, but I think the rain kind of exacerbated it. The people who fell back came back through the field like it was nothing. I mean, Martin Truex Jr. had a speeding penalty, was back inside the top five in no time. Chase Elliott pitted with the loose wheel before a restart. He was back inside the top five in no time. Ryan Blaney, I think he had an incident in the rain. He was back inside in the top five in no time. It was really cool to see everybody come and go. The, the, the really road course prominent guys. And the one that was better than anybody and is clearly the most prominent, he asserted his dominance once again. Fourth straight road course win, back-to-back wins at the Roval, five of the last six road courses. What an insane run for Chase Elliott. He's the winner of the Bank America Roval 400. He's on to the round of eight, and he's going to take us through his mindset when he had to pit under caution coming to the green for that loose wheel and also answers a question from yours truly. Um, I, I mean, you never know, uh, to be, to be honest, but I was just focused on trying to move forward. Felt like our car was, was driving well, uh, but certainly set back and got a caution. I thought at a really good time and kind of bunched us back up. We had made our way through there some, and then that kind of allowed us to reset. And, and I felt like at that point we were in a position that we were kind of back to where we were, uh, or close to it. Uh, with the way the strategy was working out. So it felt like we just need to be smart, try to, you know, just keep our eyes forward and, and make the next, uh, you know, the next right call, whatever that was, you know, putting on tires at the, at the caution or not. So uh, Alan made a, made a great call, called a good race, had a fast car, and things went our way, and, and that's all we could ask for. Chase, in the lead-up to road course events, I mean, mentally, is your preparation any different than other weeks considering your track record at them, or is it the same? It's honestly not. Uh, I feel like we approach every week the same, uh, to, to be honest. And, you know, there's certainly areas that, you know, we want to try to improve on um, all the time. And, and like I said a minute ago, you know, I, I don't think that you can just come to these places and just be the same as you were last time and expect to have the same results. So I thought our car was better today than it was last year. I thought I did a better job today than I did last year. And um, I think that was why we were able to, to get a good result. How about Alan Gustafson atop the pit box? This is the fourth year that they've gotten to the round of eight. So what do they got to do differently to get to the championship four this time? You know, there's always ifs and buts. I certainly feel like there's a couple times that I think we could have advanced. Last year was it was pretty disastrous for us um, with the with the Martinsville parts failures and the um, the uh, issue with the, the tire failure at Phoenix. Um, so Phoenix has been tough on us that fall race for whatever reason, you know, we've, we were in position to, to win it a few years back and spent on pit road and, 
um, have had some trials and tribulations there. So, uh, yeah, we got to find a way to get through and, and certainly winning one of these three, or like I mentioned before, running, running at the sharpen and the spears, what it's going to take. And I think we can do it. Um, I think, uh, we've progressively gotten better and better and better. And I think we were much better than our results showed last year. Um, our, our performance in the round of eight showed last year. We just, we just had a really, really bad round. So, um, yeah, I think we can do it. And, uh, we're going to work really hard to do it. And, and we've got a great, uh, support behind us and, and everybody at HMS is, is pushing hard and, and Alex did a great job. Greg and Alex did a great job getting through. So we've got, uh, we've got, you know, two, two with a, a shot to make it through. And certainly we'd like to like to get them both through. Joey Logano was second, Eric Jones third, another top five run for him. Kurt Busch and Ryan Blaney, they rounded out the top five. Alex Bowman got a top 10 finish, and I'm talking about him because he made some some Twitterverse waves this week, I guess you could say. He talked about his anxiety over the radio. And Jim Utter, who um, I consider a, a friend and a colleague, some people hate him, some people love him, but teach his own. He's been nothing but good to me. Um, he tweeted the hashtag anxiety Alex. Everybody's seen it by now and was seemed to be making light of the situation. He later apologized, explained his reasoning, take him at his word for what it's worth. You can make your own assumptions and thoughts. But I actually was curious to ask Alex like what he thought about it because this is a serious issue. Anxiety is no joke. Neither is mental illness. Um, and I wanted to see like if this is a legitimate thing that he had dealt with inside the race car before. Hey, Alex, um, on a bit of a serious note, I don't know if I just don't listen to your radio closely enough each week, but is your anxiety something that actually like um, happens to you during races in the race car weekly or is it kind of a rare occurrence? Um, I feel like it's not super common in the race car, um, you know, before races and high pressure situations, um, you'll, you'll have that, I guess. And um I, I feel like I was just really stressed out it means a lot to me to make the round of eight and, and was really something I felt like, um, with the point situation we were in, we, we had to do, um, with the, the race team that, that Mr. H has, has given me and, and put me with and all the resources we, we have, I feel like it was, it was pretty necessary to make the round of eight. So, um, I don't know. It just, it means a lot to me and I put a lot of pressure on myself to, to make that happen. Going off of that, did it make any difference having the 48 news out in the open this week, or did it not really matter? To be honest with you, that probably helped distract me um, through through the majority of the week, and just being able to talk about something else and not not being so caught up in a, a point situation. Um, it's just tough, man. Like you come to the Roval, stressful. It's a cutoff week, it's stressful. And you're surrounded in points by champions of the sport, of the sport. extra stressful. Uh, you're trying to beat Kyle Busch, and it's going to rain. It's like how many stressful elements can you you add to one thing? So um, being able to talk about something else was, was definitely uh, helpful this week, I feel like. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Yep. So I appreciate Alex being honest with me there, and I think um, the rest of the – the NASCAR world also appreciates his honesty and openness as well. So it winds up being the same four drivers eliminated that came in below the cut line. Kyle Busch, he's done. Clint Boyer, Eric Almarola, and Austin Dillon. 
Bush is now the earliest defending champion to be eliminated from the playoffs in the round of 12 since this format came into existence in 2014. I think I saw something that said Jimmy Johnson, who won it in 2012, was eliminated in the round of 12 in 2013, but it's like weird because it wasn't in existence in 2012, so whatever. Bottom line is Kyle's out, Eric's out, Clint's out, Austin's out. And that's that, right? Really good race, though. I, I enjoyed the strategy at the beginning and the rain tires. And I know that on Door Bumper Clear, they talked about possibly running rain tires at Martinsville because you saw how fast they were going in the corners and in the infield portion of the road course. And Martinsville, their speeds don't get too crazy high. So I'm all for rain tires at Martinsville. Why not? Let's throw them on there. Let's not go crazy and put them on at Bristol or Dover or Texas or Daytona and Talladega. But I'm all for it. I'm all for it at Martinsville. Let's try it. Why not? Interview time. Michael Self, driver of the number 25 for Venturini Motorsports. He is a NASCAR and Arkham Menard Series veteran. And by the time you're listening to this, you may already know whether or not he won the championship this year. But this weekend is the Arkham Menard Series finale at Kansas Speedway. He sits second in the points behind Brett Holmes, eight points back. Full disclosure, we did record this interview a couple weeks back, so it was when he was in a little bit closer grasp of the title, and I think he actually may have been leading the points at that time, but regardless, this interview does not really focus on a lot of the current happenings in Michael Self's life in terms of the ARCA championship. We briefly touched on it at the end, but this is more so about his him as a driver as a whole. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff. Introduction to racing, living in Utah, go-karting there, and eventually competing in the World Championships out in Portugal, meaning some IndyCar big names out there. That was a pretty cool story from him. He was actually an RCR development driver, but he sets me straight and why it wasn't really all that it was cracked up to be. Plus, we get into his time in K&N. Um, he was with multiple organizations in his time over there. He actually ran for Sunrise Ford, got a lot of success with Rob Brancati over there, was a teammate of Julia Landauer, and then developed a relationship with Sinclair Oil, which is the sponsor that he currently holds at Venturini. Of course, that green and red car with a dinosaur on it, it's kind of like a, a fan favorite nowadays. So how that relationship began, how his passion for coaching the next generation of drivers started and why that's something he wants to keep going. And then we also touched on some serious topics like the candidness that he displayed of racing with a revolving door of teenagers around him while being a veteran in the series and how those two differing ideologies on track don't really mesh that well. Plus, I asked him whether or not he's content to stay in ARCA or if he wants to gain more national series experience, how he's getting his business degree at UNC. That's pretty cool what he's doing there. Should be wrapping that up sometime soon. Also, we reminisce on some good times, getting some kisses from Bill Venturini and Victory Lane. <laughs> Funny pictures on his website that I think he actually took off now because I probably reminded them of it. Um, having his former team owner, who was a chef, cook him some gourmet hot dogs and a rental car shuttle at 4 a.m. following a win in Meridian that I remember so, so vividly. Plus a whole, whole lot more. I will stop blabbering. I told myself I wasn't going to do this on the last episode, but I just told you everything that we talked about. Anyways, here is the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Self. Some people may know him as the dude that drives the dinosaur on his car, but it's not Dynaco, people. Different colors, different movie. But this man, I'm telling you, 
He's a NASCAR slash ARCA veteran. I think that's fair to say at this point. And he drives the 25 for Venturini Motorsports. It's Michael Self. Uh, Michael, it's been it's been a weird year, and I'm glad that I got the chance to chat with you now. As I said, no better way in 2020 other than on the Zoom platform, of course. Where are you at right now, and how's everything going in your life? Yeah, I'm, I'm like most people. I'm at home. <laughs> um, this has kind of become... Uh, I guess uh, I guess the norm here, but but it's honestly not too far from from what my normal schedule was before quarantine life. You know, I, I've been in school full time since 2016 um, at University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Mm-hmm. Um, I have done online school since summer of 2016. That's kind of how I've been able to make it work along with the with the racing and work schedule. Um, so I've still been doing that. Hopefully I'll be able to, to wrap that up next semester, um, spring of 2021. So I'm looking, looking forward to that. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, I'll tell you what, for everyone that, that listens to this, especially the young, young kids in racing, I'll say, look, do it when you're, when you're young, go to college after high school, you know, when <laughs> yeah. you're in your late teens or your early twenties. Cause it's, it's harder when you're around my age, when you're almost 30 to go back and do it again. And they just don't have the time and the, the, the time's the biggest thing, right? Is filling it in. So, so school takes up a whole lot of it. And then, um, we've been able to wrap up some projects on the house. You know, this is a project that my wife and I, we, we got into just about three years ago now and have done a, a complete renovation on this. So, um, you know, we've been able to get some stuff done stay productive throughout the whole last couple of months here. And, uh, all, all's good. All things considered. It's what you got to do in quarantine. You need to find a way to stay productive, stay active, not just sit on your butt and do nothing. So I'm glad that you're uh, you're able to do that. And you mentioned UNC Greensboro. So you're living down there in the Charlotte area, and I think that you're getting your degree in business. Is that right? Yeah, business administration. There you go. Cool. And I think also I read on your website, you did you also attend the University of Utah back home, or did I misread that? No, I did do a little bit, but it was very small. It was only a handful of classes that I did. Um, like I said, right after right after high school, when I graduated, yeah. I did go do a semester at UNC, or at, excuse me, at the U, and uh, I, I I bailed out on that to go racing. Thought that was the best plan at the time. So that's interesting because I I hear the U, and I think Miami here on the East Coast, but I guess yeah. out there that's Utah. Yeah, yeah, that's yep. The University <laughs> of Utah. Everyone calls that the U. I I'd never heard of. Well, I mean, I've heard of the University of Miami, right, but right. I'd never heard of as Miami until I moved to the East. So they both have their, their own, I guess. Huh. Interesting. Um, let's, let's stay on that topic for a little bit. I mean, as you said, the, I guess you could say normal way of doing things education wise is to get your high school degree, go to college and do that. But, you know, as you said, you started at Utah, decided to pursue racing more, which you did. And now you're back trying to get your business degree at 29 years old. I think you are right now. Um, I'm sure you don't really regret anything, but you did say, you know, if you're listening, do it the normal way. Um, what were the thought process and the decisions like with you and yourself and saying, you know what, I want to go back to school. I want to get my business degree right now. Like, what were those thoughts like? Yeah, so I guess, you know, it would be a really long one. We'll go throughout the whole thing, bigger situation into account, right? So mine at the time, you know, I was very fortunate when I was growing up that I, like, like a lot of kids now, you know, my family was able to, to fund my racing up through the, the NASCAR Canaan level. Um, and when I graduated high school, that was in 2009, I was just starting to step into the, the Canaan Pro Series West out there. Um, and for mm-hmm. me, you know, I'll be honest about it up until that point, everything had just gone smoothly. I could always go race because I was fortunate to have family funding behind me and, 
Um, I was never really concerned and I, I wanted to go racing. That's, that's what I wanted to do. Right. And so I went and did that little bit of that semester at the U um, and then decided, look, I, I'm going to be a race car driver. I can do this. There's never been anything to hold me back from it. So I went and I, I actually moved out to California um, to where the race team was at the time and, and moved out there and started to work with the race team, be in the shop day to day and then, and then go racing just so I could learn and be a little bit more involved with it. And then, that, that that went on you know that that was fine everything was worked out as, as it should have there and racing you know did kind of kind of take off the next couple of years i was able to get more heavily involved in the canaan series i was able to start winning races mm-hmm. um got you know kind of hooked up with the, the rcr development program but then when when 2013 came around um that was the year where, where we didn't have any funding left after that we, we'd kind of let ourselves dry to be honest from a family standpoint we just didn't have any sponsorship we'd We'd started working on it at that point. We'd had little hits here and there, but it, it didn't really come as we expected it to. And the opportunity at the next level just hadn't presented itself. You know, at the time, there there were opportunities to go truck racing, but but the price tag at the time, I guess around 2013, 14, when it was going to cost you know, a million and a half or two million dollars to go run trucks, that right. was just that was not possible for us. And that that was kind of the only um, thing thing out there. You know, that was that was kind of it right we didn't really have anything else to go on after that so um in in 2014 didn't have the opportunity to race at all um i moved to north carolina to try to continue to pursue it and try and try and find my way to get back into things and i was pretty fortunate that when i moved out here i I got hooked up with um the turner scott motorsports team which was running Kane and east at the time mike greachy was heading things up Mm -hmm. over there and he and i had had a little bit of relationship and so he gave me a job coaching and working things out which which i was fortunate to be able to do to start making my own income and start working on things um but i I did that for a couple years you know tried to get back into the seat myself and had little hits here and there but uh, it just kind of i I learned that because the situation i was in i realized realistically my future in racing how, how slim that chance was right um for me to to make a career as of racing at that point in time. Um, and I, and I realized I was, I, I was doing a lot of spotting and I, and I was doing some coaching, but I, I wanted more, you know, I'd kind of got to that point around 2015 and 2016 where I said, look, I, I want to do more. I want to do more outside of racing. I want to expand my horizons, but I don't really know anything else because I've been involved in racing my entire life since I was 10 years old up to that point. Mm-hmm. I, I just had that feeling that, look, that's the only thing that I know, right? What else am I going to do? That panic situation that I guess I'm sure a lot of people get in if they lose a job or, or semi midlife. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, I kind of took it upon myself. It was the summer of 2016 is when I started taking my first class um, at Central Piedmont Community College here locally in Charlotte online. And I said, look, you know, I want something that I can put put with me. I want something that I can take with me. I want to go get a degree. School was never the easiest thing for me, but I think that was because, you know, I, I wasn't the greatest student by any means. Um, I, it was, it was hard for me. I didn't do all that well in high school. And so I decided, look, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to pay my way through school and I'm going to really, really be committed to this and get it behind me. And I, I got going with it and um, have, have continued to did my, got my associate's degree there at CPCC and then was able to transfer over to UNCG where I'm, I'm going to get my bachelor's here next year. And it's something that I've realized I'm really, really proud of that I've gone back and, and at this age, gone back and got my degree and paid my way through school, been able to maintain mm-hmm. a 4.0, you know, GPA, um, something that I didn't think was wow. going to be possible when I was, was when I was in high school. Um, but I'm really, really glad that I've gone back and done it. And it does feel like, look, being realistic now, it, it's still probably not a, a massive 
chance that I'm going to go make a living racing, you know, maybe, maybe in the cup series, Xfinity, whatever it is, that chance is very, very small. It's very small for a lot of people. Um, but now that doesn't feel like the end of the world where in 2013 and 2014, when I ran out of that funding, it was that panic situation. Now it's like, well, I've been going to school. I built a pretty good network. I've been able to do some of these side jobs with coaching and other things over the last couple of years. I've built a solid network. Um, all those things come together. It's like when racing's over, you know, I'll, I'll move on. It's, and that's okay. I think that's, that just shows your experience and wise beyond your years, because there's a lot of people, whether or not it's a blessing and a curse at the same time when it's, you know, they're so committed, they're so dead set on making a career out of this. Whereas, you know, they, they don't realize in the moment that unfortunately the, the nature of the beast right now is that this is a pay to play sport. And that if you can't bring that money to the table, you're going to be SOL pretty darn quickly. Um, and I think, I think it's really cool for you. And also 4.0, like, damn, congrats to you. Cause yeah, like, I, I couldn't do that. I didn't do that when I was in school, but, um, I, I don't know. I I'm curious as to your thoughts on why you think a lot of other drivers granted, you know, the ones that you're competing with in ARCA and we'll get to all that stuff as well. And you, you ran through your entire career, which I, I have, um, it bitty points to touch on as well. But why, why do you think some of the younger drivers, whether it be graduating high school or, when they were around your age, when you started with the RCR development program, why don't you think that they pursue a degree with their racing? Is it, is it just one of those things where you got to pick and choose and they choose racing? I uh, no, I don't think so. And I don't want it to be taken that way at all. Right. I mean, look, everyone's got to understand their own situation that they're in. And, and I get the dream of racing. Right. I mean, as much as anybody does, I've been through You're that. Living it, yeah. Um, I, I just look at it as having that education, getting a degree. Um, it's never going to hurt you. Right. So if you can do it when you're a little bit younger, when you've got the time where if all you do is, is, is go racing, you know, however many months it is set six, seven months out of the year, the rest of that time, you know, there's no harm. If you're just sitting at home or you're going to the shop or anything, there's no harm in going and getting that degree. Right. It's not going to hurt you. I, I'll never forget the amount of times that people ask me what my backup plan was when I was younger, when I was in <laughs> high school or, or my late teen years. Sure, that was said, an annoying oh, question. Yeah, but my, my, my answer was, it was naive. It was, oh, I think racing is going to work out. But it was because it always had worked out up to yeah. that point, right? I didn't you didn't know any it. better. I didn't see um, it to be realistic that it couldn't happen because, you know, I, that was never portrayed as a possibility to me. You know, I, I just thought that the money would never, that never end. And it did. And when it did, it was a really, really awful feeling. Um, so again, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, hey, you're stupid to rely on racing. Don't do it. It's not going to be realistic. That's not the case mm -hmm. at all. Look, I've come back and I, I've enjoyed what I've done the last couple of years. And there's kids out there that are so, so talented. And um, I just say, look, it's not going to hurt you getting that degree and having that education. For me, it's a, it's a good feeling. It's something that I've enjoyed. Um, it's, it's something I've been able to use as a, as a network builder um, to meet more people. Uh, like I'm sure, sure, you know, you know, if you go to college and have the in-college experience, you get to a Greek program, you know, that's the one thing that I've, really missed out on is having that network and, and those openings over there from that side of it. So I, I just don't see a, a downside into it at all. It's just time, right? But you can, you can take a little bit extra, take online classes and take all the time that you need to as someone young. And I, I say, say people, they should, should do that. You know, it's for me, it's something I'm proud of and that I'm happy that I've gone and done. You should be proud of that for sure. And also I add parenthetically, college is not cheap, but it's cheaper than racing when you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know you mentioned earlier, you started racing at the age of 10. So I want to go all the way back there and then kind of work our way forward because you, you have a lot of stuff that went on early on in your career and you should, and it's really accomplished. And I remember 
yesterday I was prepping for this. I was looking on your website and I clicked the accomplishments tab. I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And that list must have been 150 <laughs> bullet points yeah. long um, because you did it all, man. And as I said, 10 years old, Salt Lake City, you're racing go-karts. You won a bunch of titles all over the country. I think there were some West Coast specific titles and also some nationwide titles. And you were also selected to represent the United States at the World Championships. I mean, you're 10 years old at this point. How cool that, that was that? That was not when I was 10. That was, I think I was 16 for that one. Okay, but, but got yeah. it. That, that makes a little more sense. But still, I mean, that must have been really cool for you to be 16 years old. You know, you didn't know any better at that point, And you're representing the world at the U.S. Karting Champion or at the World Karting Championships. That's that's insane, man. Yeah, that, that one was that one was really special. Um, that was through you know back at the time, one of the biggest series in the United States was the the Rotax Max Challenge, um, which was in terms of karting, it was basically a spec motor, a sealed motor that you know everyone could run equal rules at every track across the country. Um, and that series got huge there for for a little while. And so um, you know there was a regional series that everyone would race. Excuse me, local series that everyone would race at their local state tracks, and then that mm-hmm. would go to the regional series where you had the East and West. Um, and I think that year I did win the, the West portion of it. And then from there, you'd go to the, the grand nationals, which was the big national race where the, the top from the East and the West come together. Um, I finished top, top three in that one, I think. And then I believe it was the, the, the top three from, you know, there was a junior category for 18 and younger and then 18 and older for a senior category. And then, um, a couple of different classes, but everyone basically run the same package, same motor motor package just maybe different weight rules or age restrictions mm-hmm. um and so yeah i was one of the three uh, finishing in the top three in that event that got to go over to portugal for the, wow. the world finals and that was you know whatever the top three from basically each each nation and it was yeah it was pretty outrageous to be honest with you <laughs> i mean you, you think you're pretty you're pretty high and mighty when you're your top three in america and then you go over and you, you, you race against these kids from germany and belgium and france and wherever you're just like italy you know you're like man i got nothing on these kids I mean, these guys are serious kart racers yeah right but a very cool opportunity um a lot of karting for me when i was you know age 10 through 18 that was where my foundation was it was all it was all road race asphalt karting a uh, little bit of shifter karting stuff in there but something that i really really enjoyed um and then that that translated to a little bit of um big car road course stuff a little bit of um skip barber formula car racing and, and that train kind of went over to the sports car world just a little bit and then um, i guess when i was 18 was the first time i got into a stock car um and that was a late model out west in in sacramento at roseville which i know you're familiar with roseville yep. a little bit and and kind of decided that i enjoyed that you know I, I, that's another thing that i'm not sure if that was the best best situation or not for me because at the time um I had been selected. Actually, this is when Champ Car still existed before before Andy Car and Champ Car. You're dating yourself here, Michael. And, yeah, yeah, I know. So, um, <laughs> I actually had a deal for from Mazda, who Mazda was the the Champ Car motor supplier mm-hmm. at the time. Um, I'd had a scholarship through them. They had come from karting from that Rotax series that I talked about, where it was basically you know they were they were basically sponsoring me, giving me a a scholarship that would kind of run through their program, which their program was karting and then the the Skip Barber championships um and then pro mazda was the next step up at the time then formula atlantics and then champ car that was kind of their ladder system um and i was kind of picked up by mazda to go to go through that ladder system um and and this maybe goes back with, with the education and, and being realistic and knowing the situation when i when i got the chance to test the stock car i just decided to jump on that 
right? I kind of left the Mazda thing off to the side and the scholarship off to the side when, when Champ Car and IndyCar merged and said, I'm going to go try, try oval racing. I've never done that before. Let's give it a shot. And, and you know, who knows what could have been over there on the, the Mazda yeah. side of things and, and that side of it. But we got into the, the stock car, the um, late model out there at Roseville and, and was able to pick that up pretty quick and really, really enjoyed that. And then that transferred over to the, the K&N series. Yeah, so let's let's hit on KN in a minute because I want to go back to the, the the world championships for a quick sec. So you're 16, mm-hmm. you're in Portugal, you're with the best of the best carters in the world. I'm sure you have to have either some stories or some like oh my god moments of like did you see anybody that at that point you were the same age as them but went on to do incredible things like an F1, IndyCar, or were you starstruck at any point? Like were there any fun stories from that point in Portugal? Yeah. I mean, I think, man, some of the kids that I raced against, um, I look at now, I, I know, I think I actually realized this just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jack Hawksworth, oh, who yeah. he runs. Yeah. Jack, you know, he runs in IMSA and, and runs for, mm-hmm. um, AM Foster Motorsports. He finished yeah. third in my, my race that year in Portugal. Wow. Um, Jack's one that I know that's gone on. There was this, you know, I'm trying to think of, of who else. There's a lot of kids that race in IndyCar stuff now. Uh, Gabby Chavez, Alex Rossi. He was about a, a couple of years ahead of me at the time. Joseph Newgarden. I was racing against him quite a bit. Um, it's the who's who. Uh, yeah, yeah. If I look at IndyCar field now, I'd say there's probably about a third of them were kids that were racing close to my level in in karting. That's pretty cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I guess real quick, I don't want to like jump around too much, but you, you said you had that opportunity to test the stock car, so you jumped on it once that once the open wheel stuff was getting a little shady i mean now looking at where those guys are new gardens a champ gabby chavez been an indy car like rossi indy 500 champ do you have any ounce of regret that you didn't want to did you didn't pursue the maza thing any further or in that moment do you look back on it and say you know what i made the right choice um yeah i mean there's 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 times when both both feelings kind of come and flare you know um I, I do miss road racing quite a bit. Uh, you know, road racing is something that I would honestly say, you know, hopefully there's more of that in my future. Um, something I could go back to just cause I do really, really enjoy it. Um, uh-huh. that's why I, I stick to coaching over in the trans am series. Um, and, you know, and there, there's definitely times where I think I look at road racing now and they're, you know, it, it's a different model, right? I mean, there's not quite as much fans. There's not quite as much coverage or exposure from it but there's a tremendous amount of manufacturer involvement and, and money from that side of things versus yeah. just the direct corporate sponsorship right. dollars that, that come to stock car racing. So you say, look, I had a little bit of a tie with Mazda there with that manufacturer backing, how far could that have carried and how much easier could things have been? Um, and so I look back at it and, and I think that, but at the same time, you know, I've done some incredible, what I feel like are incredible things that I'm really proud of in, in stock no car racing, you know, I've, one Daytona three times now, um, two times on the super speedway and one time on the road course. That's, that's really cool for me. I've won at some major tracks. I've won on super speedways, dirt, short tracks, road courses, intermediate tracks. Um, you know, things that I'd always like to check off. So, you know, I'll never say that it was a, it was a bad decision or something that I regret by any means. And hopefully, like I said, maybe there's, there's opportunity in the future to get back over and dabble in that some more. Yeah. I mean, every race car driver at some point in their careers, professionally or personally, there's always a road that you got to choose one way to go down. And usually everybody chooses the right route. And I think you did as well. I mean, as you said, not many people can say that they've won a race at Daytona more over three times. So I think you're doing pretty well for yourself. Um, nah, but l- l- let's get, yeah. I mean, let's get back to the <clears throat> K&N stuff though. Cause I think you were 21 years old. 2011 was when you were selected 
to join RCR as a development driver. I think the team was called Golden Gate Racing back then. Um, yeah. So what was it like to be a development driver at that time in a program like that? Because I feel like in 2011, that was kind of early in the development type of thing. Because now you hear Toyota, they have a huge pipeline, Ford, Chevrolet, same thing. But back then, I feel like that was maybe at the start of the development boom, you could say. And you so, were kind of at the start of it. I don't want to downplay what you're saying at all, right? But I'm going to be I'm going to be totally honest with you Should about the situation there. Um, so that situation, Jim Jim Offenbach owned Golden Gate Racing Team, which was the 20 car one car back then. Mm-hmm. For years, you know, the RCR development program had existed out west for a while. It was with Bill McAnally Racing. Um, I think he had Carrier and Hard. Sarah Fisher was part of it. Um, but Jim Offenbach and Richard had basically become great friends over the years. It's actually kind of interesting how they met. Jim was a, a meat meat packer basically he um he owned a huge massive multi-million dollar meat packing company up in san francisco and that's what golden gate meat was um he he'd been out at, at sonoma jim had been out at sonoma um basically basically cooking i forget exactly the story was one time but earnhardt senior and, and richard had had smelled what jimmy was cooking and had or, no excuse me I'm, I'm sorry i'm wrong they went to eat earnhardt and um childress had gone to eat somewhere in, in San Francisco, somewhere up there okay. by Sonoma. And the, the restaurant had been serving Golden Gate meat. Um, and they loved it. They said, this is some of the best meat we've we've ever had. You know, where do you get this? And the, the head chef said, well, this comes from Golden Gate Meat Company. You know, I'll give you the, their contact information. Um, they called up Jimmy and Jimmy came and cooked for him that weekend out at Sonoma. Cool. And so Jimmy built that relationship with Richard. They became really, really tight, really close buddies. So when Jimmy owned the 21 car, Richard offered to help Jimmy out. He said, look, you know, we'll, we'll make you the RCR development program out West out there. We'll, we'll give you a little bit of technical support, you know, parts and all that. Um, a little bit of help on that. But, but when, when I came along, look, I was able to say, yes, I'm a development driver for, for RCR, but our cars were, were built out West. We had a couple of old chassis from RCR. You know, we, we got parts at cost. Um, I was able to come to RCR media day one time and kind of sit, yeah, <laughs> sit yeah. off to the side a little bit. I, you know? I so, you, yeah. Again, I, I want to be honest about what the situ- situation sure, yeah. was. I was not, you know, chase, chase Elliott in the, or in the Hendrick motorsport program, yeah, yeah. Castle in the Hendrick program, testing their right, cars and right. all that. But, but, you know, it, like I said, it put up that network and being able to say that you're affiliated with RCR does, it, it's a little bit easier to get in the door when you're talking to potential sponsors or, um, or things like that. So, you know, that, that opportunity was, kind of what that was, but Jimmy was uh, awesome as far as the team owner went, you know, he gave us everything that we needed to, um, and, and always wanted to see, see me succeed. It was, it was nice to, to work with him. Still keep in touch with to this day. Did he ever cook for you? Oh yeah. Every, every weekend we actually used to give him a hard time. Me and it's Steve Portengate, my crew chief. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. him um, yep. out there, but we had hot dogs all the time. We always had hot dogs. And <laughs> it's we all he could cook up for you. Such a hard, yeah. We'd give him such a hard time. Oh, We'd say, we, we said our main, our main sponsor is this meat company and we get hot dogs at all the races. <laughs> and so whenever Probably we, whenever we, uh, you've ever had. Yeah, whenever we threw enough of a fit about it, we'd, we'd Jim and come, he'd make steak or chicken the next time. And, and you know, he'd, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was funny. So it seems like on, and I, I thank you for shooting me straight. Cause I, I didn't know any of that. It seems like on paper, you're an RCR development driver, but in actuality, it was more so like, yeah, you're connected a little bit and you can have some support here and there, but for lack of a better term, you're more so on your own with an RCR number, a little bit of technical support. 
and any ideas to bounce off of RC or people over there and welcome every now and then. But for the most yep. part, you guys were kind of your individual team out there. Yep. Yep. You nailed it. Okay, good. Glad I got that under control. But I mean, e even though that was the case, you still had a lot of success in those couple of years. I think you won six times um, and, and you were really competitive week in and week out. What do you remember most about those years in particular? Well, so starting back at the beginning, when I first got into a Canaan car, I think was, if it was 2010, maybe, I, I don't remember. That's the year that I ran for the 88 um, Motorway Motorsports out of Sacramento up there by Roseville. Um, and then in 2011, must have been my first season with Steve and Jimmy and them. And look, I'll be honest. I mean, 2010 and 11, I, I was terrible. I mean, I wasn't any good in those cars. I think the transition from a handful of late models to the, the stock car, how big and heavy it was with, with the limited oval track experience that I had I was just kind of out of my element I mean we ran we ran top five here and there the road courses would go run top five at and that was good but I tore up a lot of stuff I mean I learned too many hard lessons um mm -hmm. early on in those first two years and it just I just I'll, you know I tell people I just wasn't any good I mean I just was kind of out of my <laughs> element there and and I, I didn't really listen all that well you know I'd still I was probably a little bit too arrogant coming from karting and then the, the Mazda side of stuff where I'd won everything gone to the world championships and all that and um, you know, I didn't, didn't feel like I needed to listen. felt like I could figure this out on my own and that wasn't the case. And so when I, I finally started listening, finally started, you know, opening up a little bit, spending more time around Steve Portengay, who, who had raced a whole lot, um, and been very successful with it in his years. Um, and once I did that 2012 things, things really started to come together. I think we won three races there in 2012, but they were fairly high caliber races. You know, it was, it was, um, we won Phoenix. Um, I think won the, the West portion of iowa that yeah, year that's right um brainerd it you know brainerd uh, on the road course there and things really started to pick up and 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 move forward and definitely started to get a little bit more comfortable from that point moving forward seems like he got a little humbled and then that kind of molded you yeah absolutely that's that's definitely fair to say steve was your crew chief for most of those starts back then you think he was one mm -hmm. of the more influential people in your stock car career i'd say the most influ influential person um because i i actually I, I lived with, with Steve and his family for the majority of the time that I was doing oh, wow. that. Um, yeah, he, I, I stayed with him. I mean, I'd stay with him for, for months at a time, um, always traveling to the races together. I mean, I was just around him all the time. And Steve was a Steve and his, his wife, Wendy, they're very straight to the point people. I mean, if I, if I sucked one weekend, they told me, I mean, it wasn't, he didn't beating around the bush. They weren't trying to hype me up or anything, but mm -hmm. he was always had, Steve always had a really good attitude about it. I mean, he's, he's a funny person to be around. You know, he always had a way to bring things to the light and always, mm -hmm. and always relate to it just because he'd been there. I mean, Steve was, I lived with him. He was my crew chief. He was also my spotter, uh, you know, so he just had a tremendous impact on me learning and me getting better. Um, and he's definitely the person I, I pretty much give all, all the credit to for not, not even, on track performance, but off track too. getting that humbling and, yeah. and being realistic and learning more uh, about the, the mechanic side of it and the racing side of it as well. You need people in, in your life to shoot you straight when it comes to whatever. I mean, e even if you know, at the end of the day, they want the best for you, but if they can't be honest with you and shoot you straight, I mean, what are they there for? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, and that's something that I, I, I see, a lot of kids need now, especially mm -hmm. the kids that come oh, in yeah. and they do have the, the family funding to do it. It's like, For sure. I, I, it's, you gotta be realistic and, and humble. Um, I mean, maybe you don't have to be, but people respect it a lot more if you are, I feel like it's good to be, we can say that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So let's go to 2015. You made seven Xfinity series starts for JD motorsports at that time. 
I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but usually with JD specifically, you know, it, it's like, and I, I think Ryan Vargas did a similar thing this year. You know, instead of, you know, pulling together all these funds for a limited ARCA schedule or a limited truck schedule, your resources and your assets are better served, you know, going up higher in the ladder. So what he did was pull together the funding that he had for a limited schedule in Xfinity with JD. Is that a similar thing that you did? And I know that you ran a couple road courses in there as well. Um, what was the decision-making process like behind going Xfinity Series Racing in 2015? Yeah, so, so I was working with um, Spire Marketing at the time, and and they were the ones that helped me put all that together. Um, it, it was it was a way where we had just a little bit of funding, a little bit of sponsorship interest, and, and Johnny, you know, gave me that opportunity. Johnny had kind of needed someone to fill in a couple of the races that Landon wasn't able to run that year. Landon was driving the 01 car, and Ross was driving the four. Um, but Landon due to his, you know, he was running, running cup at full time, um, full time also. And so it was a couple of races that he couldn't make, they needed someone to fill in for, um, inspire was able to get Johnny to, to, you know, give me the okay to, to do that, to fill in for Landon at those couple of races. But then they said, look, you know, Michael's got a pretty, pretty experienced road racing background. Um, you know, is it possible to get in those as well? And so that was, you know, it was a, it was a cool opportunity there to get to go do that, to feel those things out. Um, especially ever after having not been in a car since 2013, um, just to go kind of, kind of feel things at that level. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it was a very, very small amount of sponsorship that we had to bring. Um, and that's the way things kind of, kind of go at Johnny's, you know, Johnny is very, very straightforward about what his program is. You know, he would tell you straightforward. He said, we're not here to run first through 10th. Some days we can, and that's great, but we're, we know where we run, you know, we run in that maybe 14th, 15th through 20th at the time. And he said, that's a good day. You know, we bring our cars home in one piece and that's a, a, a solid day that's for us. Yeah. Um, and we go on, on to the next one. <laughs> were you nervous at all racing for him? Cause I know that the, the key piece that he says is we want all our cars home in one piece. And I know at Bristol, I, I forget who it was, but I think, um, two of the JD cars actually tangled together and, and one of them had some pretty significant damage. And I'm sure that he was not a happy camper. Were you nervous at all? Like driving his car being like, all right, whatever I do, don't get a scratch on this thing. Just bring well, it. Well, yeah. So unfortunately I did. I mean, I, I remember I wrecked, I wrecked at Kentucky um, pretty early on in the race, just, just being in a situation that I, I didn't know mm -hmm. what to do. I mean, maybe it was being a little bit too aggressive. Um, and then I think there was, there's another time it might've been at Iowa. My first race, I blew a right front uh, and you just feel terrible. Right, man. I mean, it just like washes over. You're just like the one thing I'm supposed to not do. I just, I just went and I did, you know, it was, it's just rough. And so, yeah, you, you feel pretty bad um, in that situation, but Johnny was always understanding about it. He was a really good guy to work with. So you've had uh, up until this point, you've raced for a lot of interesting and big names in the sport. I mean, by association, we now know Richard Childress, right? Um, you, you're working with Turner Scott a little bit, Johnny Davis. And then after that year, you moved back to k West with Sunrise Ford and Bob Brancati in 2017. That season, you didn't even finish outside the top 10 all year long. Um, 13 out of the 14 races, I think, is what you competed in. And you got a top 10 in every single race. You won back-to-back -back races at Meridian and Roseville. I remember those. Because um, Meridian, I think, was one of the first races that I had ever been to um, covering an event for a NASCAR home tracks. And I remember you won that race, um, in Idaho, you went down to turn three and you did a burnout, like right in front of the Sinclair oil people. I remember that like, yeah. like yesterday, um, <laughs> that year though, man, like you didn't even finish outside the top 10 once. And I know that it's a little bit different because the, the car count back then and the competition, it wasn't what it once was, but that year, man, I mean, you were on rails. 
Yeah, you know, we were, <laughs> you see this ad, I say, you know, we were just okay that year. You know, only won two races. Um, that was the year when I think the McAnally program was really, really stout. Yeah. They had Todd Gill and um, yeah, Todd Chris, dominated that year. Yeah, Chris Eggleston was still there. Derek Krause yeah. was still there. Um, and Todd was racing the E Series at the same time. They just had yeah. a ton of resources. They were getting over there from DGR, you know, and we, we would run fourth to those guys like every single race. I remember. Yep. Um, and that, that definitely got to be, be frustrating. And, um, we, we were just a little bit, a little bit behind of what they had over there, you know, mm-hmm. of what they had. And especially with, with, you know, Bob's program had been as Bob had done it for, for years. Um, he, you know, had his, his small shop down there in, in Southern California and his guys that were local down there and, McAnally had all the guys coming from DGR, you know, flying out to do Todd's program and bringing all those notes and everything with them. And that was, that was hard to compete with, but it, it was, you know, it was, it was cool. It was kind of a no pressure situation there. Um, I was kind of in the right place at the right time to get that opportunity to race and missing a race, you know, it was like, well, you're probably not going to miss a race and then go compete for the championships and that, right. that season long points type deal. And so just we showed up and, and did the best that we could. And um, like I said, we're, was kind of able to put it together there at the end of the year and have two wins back to back, which was really cool, really, really special for me and for Bob. Mm-hmm. And um, late in the know, year just, too, which had to be nice to get those monkeys off your back. It, it was, it was for sure. It was, um, I think it was like the second to last and third to last race. It was kind of nice. You know, I'll I'll be honest again, it it had been a little bit difficult up to that point um, in that season with those guys. And um, definitely there was some frustration there. So to come off and kind of finish things off on a positive note was, was okay. And I'm looking at racing reference right now. Um, I think that your teammate that year was Julia Landauer. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. How was she to work with? Because I know now she's doing crazy stuff. She's a motivational speaker. She's on social media, brighten everybody's day. But she can she can wheel race car too, and she's over in Europe doing it. Yep, yeah. Julia is an awesome person. Um, you know, she she was a lot of fun to be around. Just just very intelligent. Um, she she was had that she did she she had a positive energy about her, which was which was really cool. Even though things didn't necessarily go all that well that year, you know. Yeah. She's just um stands up for for what she believes in which is something that she should be really proud of and something that was mm-hmm. cool to be be close to and sorry for the background noise the dog no, who cares, going nuts down there. <laughs> um yeah, i'm looking at the window i don't even see anyone she's barking at nothing don't worry um, about it. who cares but yeah yeah julia was she's she's a good person to be around you know we, we still um stay in touch stay in touch a little bit my wife and her talk every now and then and yeah you know it's cool to see that she's still still pushing on it and still doing a little bit of racing too all right, I, I'm going to tell you a story, and I, I, I hope you remember this because I remember it clear as day. So, again, Meridian, it was it was one of the first races I covered. You won it, um, and I, I had followed your career up until that point already, um, and I'm still kind of like a wide-eyed like reporter, right? I'm kind of just like, wow, this is cool. I'm getting like flown across the country to cover races, like developing some professional relationships with these drivers. This is really cool. Like Young me would be freaking out. And um, one of the less glorious and glamorous parts of working in racing, as you know, is the early mornings and the late nights. Mm -hmm. And I remember you won that race. I think we got done at the track probably around like midnight, 1 a.m., something like that. And I get up and we're in Idaho, so there's only one airport. It's Boise, right? Mm -hmm. And I get up. I return my rental car. It it had to be 345, 4 in the morning. And who else is on my rental car shuttle back to the airport than you and your wife? And I'm like what? Like, cause I was naive. I was like, wait, I thought all the drivers have private planes and they fly like all these yeah, private jets yeah, that right. go everywhere. Yeah. That's the moment when I was like, okay, I need to like realize this is KNN. These people don't have private jets and these people are just ordinary guys like me. And I remember I saw you on the red rental car shuttle 
I don't even remember if you had your trophy in hand or not, but I was just like, this guy just won the race last night. You know, he's like, I, I wrote I, everything that I wrote last night was about this guy. Everybody's talking about him on social media. Yeah. <laughs> and here he is at 4 a.m., you know, just partied all night, like had a great night with his friends and his sponsors. And he's on the rental car shuttle with me. And I was like, I wasn't like, I guess I was awestruck because I was like, wait, like these people are doing the same thing I'm doing. What? Do you remember that at all? Please don't break my yeah. heart and say you forgot. Yeah. Yeah. No, a little bit. I remember. I think, I think I do remember <laughs> that actually. That was actually, I remember most of that trip. It was kind of a fun one for us because, um, that was, uh, Sinclair was on the car that weekend because uh -huh. Sinclair has a, a really big presence there in Idaho. Yeah. Um, stinker stores are one of their big, um, convenience store partners up there. And we'd done a showing at the store the day before. And then I remember the, um, that there's a, a little, you know, the races were kind of nice because you usually didn't go in the gates until about noon. And it was kind of an all afternoon show for the Caden stuff. And my wife, Dana and I, we went down to, there was a little farmer's market in downtown Boise that we'd found that morning. We went and walked around and had breakfast and had lunch down there. And it was kind of an easy kind of relaxed day. And yeah, I remember, yeah. you know, it was, uh, we got up early the next morning and flew out of Boise there. Cause it was, that was always a hard one trying to get back to, to Charlotte at a reasonable time. And you were trying yeah. to race out West, right. Trying not to waste a whole day. So we always took the earliest flight back and tried to suffer through it. I remember, dude, like clear as day. And because there were a lot of Sinclair people at the track that day, too. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just remember, you know, like getting on the rental car shuttle. I'm like, is that Michael? Like, there's no way. And then I was like, wow, he's actually on the rental car shuttle. That was like the moment where I was like, okay, you got to stop being like starstruck by these people. They're just like you. It's, it's, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but that, that, that's just a funny story that I always remember. Um, you mentioned Sinclair. I think that same year, was when your relationship with them began. And um, now, I mean, you two, as as an organization and driver, you, you're attached at the hip, man. The people over there, um, I, I've only met a handful of them, but you work with all of them day in, day out, hand in hand. How did that partnership in the first place begin? Because I feel like now you two are synonymous together. Yeah, so that actually is kind of a cool story of how that came about. Um, it, it came from a cold call, to be 100% honest with you. And there's wow. no so they work. Yeah, yeah, there was no relationship. There was no previous networking or anything anything over there. Um, Sinclair was a brand that I was well aware of growing up out in Utah, you know, stations mm -hmm. that you see all over the place out there, but you don't really see back east. Um, and, and, you know, at the time, it was actually 2016, my dad and I, we, we've always done, you know, our own sponsorship stuff, trying to put programs together. And he, he basically, one day, he just said, look, you know, I'm going to try and get in touch with the Sinclair group. Sinclair is pretty well known because outside of the stations, you know, they own a, a handful of hotels and some other things out there in, in Salt Lake City and surrounding areas. Um, and he, he honestly just picked up the phone and, and got connected to the marketing department, the head of advertising, who's, who's Stephanie Coleman, who we still work with a ton now, um, and got, got through to her and said, hey, you know, my my." my son and I were, were involved in, in auto racing and we think we've got a, a program put together that would be really attractive to you guys. You know, we've got a couple of business to business deals that we, we think we could align and exposure value. We think we're good. And, and it just so happened that Stephanie had worked for Fox for a long time huh. um, covering the NASCAR side of things. And so she, she was kind of aware of it. She said, you know, yeah, we, we might be interested in something like that. Why don't you guys come in and, and do a presentation? Um, so we went in and met with Stephanie and, and the CMO and it just kind of hit it off right off the bat. They said, you know, that was in 2016 was Sinclair's 100 year anniversary. Um, and so the first race we were in was Kansas, the ARCA race at the very end of the year, the season finale. Um, that was the first time that we had it on there. And, and it, it was really special. You, you know, that program's always kind of consisted of beyond exposure. It's been a hospitality program um, for their customers and, and their distributors and their suppliers. 
um, something that we've always been able to bring them to the track and, and do hospitality programs for them, which is what you saw at Meridian um, with yep. the Stinker Store guys. We had a big you know booth that we always do catered and, and giveaways and, and different types of fun stuff out there. And it has been. They've been a, a really, really special partner to work with, just an incredible company to work with. Um, they really do treat everyone like family. I mean, it's been just uh, it's been an unbelievable opportunity to get to know the people that I have over there and to learn about that industry the way that I have through that through that relationship. Do you understand that you have one of the best paint schemes in NASCAR? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Okay, so, good. yeah, I've I've always <laughs> loved the Sinclair scheme from the first time I saw it. You know, so we, we got a couple different iterations of it, and I was like, "That's that's the one." You know, the one that that it currently is. It's been a little bit tweaked from the beginning. I was like, yeah. "That's that's what I, I want it to look like," and it's been cool because we get so much feedback like that. You know, people that love the dinosaur car, the car with the dinosaur on it, whether whether it's people that remember Sinclair from when they were children, you know, maybe back in the forties or fifties when Sinclair was more of a national brand or, or little kids who just like seeing the dinosaur car. Um, it's been something that we've always been able to grasp onto. And it's been really, really, really special to be a part of that. I just associate Sinclair with you because being from the East coast, I had, I hadn't even heard of him. I never knew <laughs> what it was. Um, and then once I started going out West for some races, I saw a couple of the gas stations and I always try to make it a point when I'm like returning my rental car to fill up there because I just love the paint scheme. And yeah, I, love the I appreciate dinosaur. it. I'm like, why not, man? Like, it's great. Um, I I'm curious, like, do you have any nicknames for your cars or like have people giving you nicknames for them? Because with the dinosaur on it, I'm sure that there's a lot of little kids that are very in tune with it. And I'm sure that the Dynaco thing from the movie Cars has to work their work its way in there somewhere. Yeah, Dynaco shows up all the time, and it's <laughs> it's you know the dinosaur car. That's that's the most it common you know kind of stuff that you would imagine. Yeah, you need to run like a Arca doesn't have like a throwback weekend, but if they do, you guys need to like you got to convince Sinclair to like turn the car blue for one week and just like make it look like a Dynaco car because dude, yeah. I'm telling you that would make headlines. That'd be yeah, that'd be pretty a pretty good idea for how much um, how much people people ask about that, yeah. and make a note of it, in comparison of it. That'd be that's not a bad idea if we ever if we can ever do that. Well, I'm probably gonna buy a diecast of of your car already just because I like it. Um, but if there's a Dynaco one, take my money, please. Perfect. Just take yeah. all of it. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll pass that along. Good. All right. Thank you. Please do. And obviously now you're racing for Venturini Motorsports, which is a top tier organization in ARCA, has been for a long, long time. You talked about the family atmosphere with Sinclair Oil, and I'm sure that Venturini has to be the same way, if not more so. Um, it seems like everything associated with that organization goes back to the familial atmosphere and the family ties from them. Yeah, you know, Bill, and I think Bill and Kathy are very proud of what they've done, and they should be. The business that they've built, the race team that they've built, the Billy's kind of come in and take over, and um, they are, they're great great people i mean bill and kathy still come to every single race and it's um they, they care just about it as much as ever you know they want their program to succeed billy obviously wants his program to succeed he's very involved in it from the the crew chief side of it to the general management side of it uh they are they're they're good people to race with um you know billy is just like like steve was for me back in the day someone that I can lean on for a lot of different mm -hmm. things someone that's driven himself someone that understands all the different scenarios you know it's it's been a fun couple of years with them do you remember your first kiss in victory lane from him? Yeah, yeah, because well, it was it. Uh, it was at Daytona. Was the first one I won with VMS. <laughs> yeah, it's a memorable I mean, I, one, I, huh? I, I think I don't. I don't think I knew what was coming. It kind of took me <laughs> off guard and try and try and escape away from it. But it's still there. Not not this year. He hasn't done any of that this year. But yeah, that's right. Um, we, we don't want to kiss during COVID. No, no. 
that's funny though so, so you didn't know like what was happening you were just like what is going on and then yeah after the not fact the first you were time. like okay i get it now yeah now not the first time i, I wasn't in in tune with it enough I, <laughs> up to that point i guess and, and then yeah there it comes and was your wife like shook she was like uh-oh uh yeah i think so i think uh <laughs> i think so we won't kind of figured out what uh what it was what was actually going on it's, it's okay it just blows funny. over but yeah it's part of the charm. That's why we love venturing you, right? It is. It is definitely part of the charm that you get with them. <laughs> so you're almost 30 now, and you're competing week in and week out in the Arkham Menard series with teenagers, whether they're 17, 18, 19 years old. You know, Sam Mayer and Ty Gibbs have won the lion's share of races this year. You obviously have won a handful as well, Daytona, to start the year and at the road course. What are the challenges associated with you know, competing against drivers that have a completely different background, a completely different skill set than you, you know, on, on paper, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, Michael is an established race car driver. He's a veteran. He knows how to pace himself. He knows what he needs out of the race car and he understands give and take. And everybody else, it seems like is just go, go, go aggressiveness, 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 root and gouge people out of the way. I'm sure at, at points that has to get a little bit I don't know if worrisome is the right word, but frustrating for you. It does. And, and I think you just nailed it with, with your description of it right there. Um, is these, I mean, these kids are ridiculously fast. I mean, they're ultra, ultra talented. Um, but sometimes being in the best stuff doesn't hurt as well. It, it doesn't, but, and you know, I, I think the, the, what you just said, you know, there's not as much respect as you wish there was there sometimes, mm-hmm. or, or it's kind of the attitude of they, they do no wrong. Even when they do do something wrong, that's when it becomes a little bit, a little bit frustrating. And you're like, look, man, I I've been in that position of being that kid, right? Maybe I haven't been in the position of being no matter what happens, I'm, I'm going to race forever, but I've been in a position where I felt like that was the case. Right. And maybe my attitude wasn't great. <clears throat> um, you know, being, being back then, but I will tell them like, I'm glad I turned it around because that's not the attitude to have because it'll come back and it'll bite you. You know, it's, it's in my opinion, be the, be the guy that shows respect, be the guy that is like, look, I made a mistake. You know, that's okay. I remember learning that lesson myself. Um, Patrick Long, I don't know if you know who Patrick is. He's a, he's a road racer. You know, he races, he's a Porsche factory guy. One of, one of the best road racers in the world, um, arguably for, for a long time. I remember he taught me that and he said, that, you know, the race car drivers I admire the most are the ones that can get out and say, look, I had a bad day today or I had an off day. Um, and when, when I think you learn that and you can do that, you kind of take a, a, another step yourself in terms of respect and respecting your no equipment doubt. and respecting other people's equipment. Um, and there's not as much of that as I think you'd like to see at this stage, um, at this phase. And, you know, I, I try to raise people like that and try to respect the Venturini's equipment and whoever's equipment that I'm racing mm-hmm. against. And, and it is, it's just frustrating when you feel like that's not reciprocated, but when, when it's not reciprocated for the reason, because they just don't have the appreciation for it. Right. Yeah. Not because they want to or don't. It's just like they, they haven't had to learn those lessons and they may never do. Um, th- that can be frustrating. Like you said. Yeah. And the part that I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is more frustrating than anything is that you have no control over that, right? Like you can do whatever you can with protecting the equipment and running your own race. You're in, you're in the thick of a championship battle right now, but you know, whether it's Ty Gibbs, Sam Mayer, Haley Deegan, um, Drew Dollar, your teammate who I know you had like a tad bit of a run in with at Talladega. I mean, no matter what you do, you can't control their actions behind the wheel. And I think that makes it all the more frustrating for you because and i don't know if you have if you want to share please do but like 
you, you can speak with them after the race, before the race and say, hey, I saw I saw it this way. You know, this is what I've experienced in the past. I'm just trying to like pass along some knowledge to you. And they can either, you know, take that and learn from that or they can say, you know what? He's doing his deal. I'm doing mine. I want to win. Um, that also yeah, sure. has to be a really, you know, frustrating and annoying part of this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it is, it's, it's those, you know, B factors that are, that are out of your control, those external factors you don't have right. anything to do with that you get caught up in and, and it can be frustrating. I mean, Drew, Drew, I'll say he, he's very easy to talk to and Drew's very understanding and Drew wants to learn. Obviously I, I have the most contact with him because he is my teammate of course. and there's been times, you know, there's been times where, I'll give Michigan, for example, where I, I didn't really appreciate the way he raced me, but I think with Drew, it was more that he just didn't know, you know, he was in a situation with aerodynamics where he didn't fully understand what, what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, someone like me saw it and was like, dude, that was a, that was a bonehead move. Um, you know, I get out and try and explain why I see it that way and say, look, from my standpoint, this is, this is how I saw it and, and he'll take it. And he says, look, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for it to be like that. It, it's a great learning lesson. Then it hasn't been a problem, a problem since then. Um, so, you know, some of them you can talk and, and, give them that kind of feedback and listen and stuff. And, and some of them, you know, not so much, but, um, it's, it is, I mean, I, I will say that throughout the last couple of years, I have noticed, you know, a lot of the kids that I've been fortunate enough to work with, like Justin Haley, for example, you know, when I worked with him for a couple of years in the E series, Justin listened really, really well. And he was able to take that kind of information and, and respected that kind of information. And I, you know, I'm proud of him and what he does, does now and how he races. Do you find yourself racing differently to adapt to them or do you find, them racing differently to adapt to you no i think i have to race more to adapt to them you know it's my, my spotter he tells me all the time you know, remember who you're racing around just because sometimes you have to be you just gotta be careful you gotta be cautious that they they may not know you know they may be in a situation where they get a little bit over their head or they may not know or give as much room so maybe you give a little bit extra but you just learn i mean it's it's for each individual driver you know you learn that you can you can run a little bit harder or not as close to or whatever it may be yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned Justin Haley. Let's touch on him for a little bit because I know that you've coached him a little bit over the years. And you also teach in general. I think you still do, even though you live in the, the Charlotte area at Utah Motorsports Campus. Um, is that one of those things that you're doing, helping the next generation of race car drivers learn their craft and just how to be? Is that something that you take pride in, especially with Justin? Yeah, you know, so it goes back a little bit. When I when I first moved to Charlotte, I, I worked with Justin full time in 2015 and 2016 when Got he it. was running the K and E series, and I was pretty much attached to him. I mean, basically, if he went racing, I went racing with him. Um, and through Justin, I got connected to the the Trans Am TA2 program and my cope racing over there, uh, which is all road racing. Um, you know, stuff stuff similar to my background. My my working at a Utah Motorsports campus that had kind of been prior to this when I still lived in Salt Lake City. I was working for the Ford Racing School out there and doing coaching. So the coaching side of it just translated over. Um, and so when, when I started working with Justin, you know, was was with him constantly all the time once he went on and, and went up to the truck series i decided to stay with the the trans am series with mike cope racing because i'd been able to build a a little bit of a client base there justin had come in from never road racing before in his life um it's running a handful of races in 2015 and doing very well and then competing for the championship both in the Canaan e series and the trans am series in in 2016 there a lot. and as yeah yeah it was it was a lot of racing and and as justin had um, excelled. And as he'd gotten better in the Trans Am series, you know, guys had noticed that and they'd come to me saying, Hey, you know, are you available to work with me as well? And, and guys, I wanted to get the Mike Cope racing tent there. 
Um, and so I've kind of gone away from, you know, I, I don't have one kid that I attach myself to and, and go around with anymore, but I still do coaching. I, I go to every Trans Am race that I can and still have three or four clients there that run full time. Um, and most of them are actually older guys, guys maybe in their later 30s, 40s. Some of them um, are even in their 60s that are, that are racing. And it's a series I really, really enjoy being with. And it's, it's, I love going and coaching. I love being involved with the Trans Am stuff, love being around the road racing side of it. Um, and something that I can do to share my love of road racing and my knowledge of road racing, you know, it's something I, I enjoy sharing that and, and translating over that. And that's where I see my coaching kind of sticking to, you know, if I continue doing it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It seems like that's combining two of your main passions. As you mentioned earlier, your road racing and, you know, whenever whenever the ARCA stuff starts to die down a little bit, you know, you want to explore that maybe a little bit more in different vehicles and the coaching. So it seems like this is a perfect marriage of combining those two things that you're super passionate about. And it seems like, you know, you're going to you have no plans of stopping doing those things anytime soon. No, it is. I, I, I do. I, I really enjoy the weekends. Um, you know, we go to some of the best tracks in the country. We go to Sebring, Road America, Road Atlanta, uh, VIR actually heading up there tomorrow for the Trans Am stuff. Um, Coda, Daytona, the road course. Really, really cool places, really fun road courses to go to, places that I've got experience at. And the cars are just, they're, they're some of my favorite cars to drive, the way that they're built. And, and they have a ton of of access in terms of coaching. Every car has an in-car camera and they are, are fully outfitted with data acquisition systems. So it makes it really cool. nice from a coaching standpoint for me to get information and gather and share it. But hopefully it is something that I'll be able to, to continue doing. I've, I've been able to have some success, you know, been been lucky with my clients to see them, them improve and get better. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to build that a little bit and, and I hope it continues. All right. I'm going to take a hard right turn here. Do you know who built your website? Um, I do. Who was that? That was Barry Cantrell. Okay. Love Barry. Great guy. Are you aware of these um, old pictures that are on your website um, of you? I don't know how old you were, but you are not as old as you are now. I mean, these are like, you look like a model here. And I'm just curious if you're aware of these. And if you're not, I will share my screen and show you. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, actually. Okay, That's, um, yeah, <laughs> those actually, um, there was a guy. You look like in, you're in Ford versus Ferrari here, dude. It was actually for, for a, it was actually a shoot for the local gap there in Salt Lake City. Wow. Um, it, basically, the guy who's a, he's a photographer, he's an awesome photographer out there. He, he contacted me, reached out, and was like, hey, man, you know, I'm doing a shoot for Gap. Um we want to do it out at the racetrack with a local race car driver. You know, I was given your name. Would you be interested? And I was like, sure. Why not? You know, pays a little bit of money. You know, it's kind of something to go do. Yeah, of course. A bunch of clothes. So yeah, I do. I know exactly what you're talking about. Dude, I'm just going through these laughing out. Oh my God. I mean, you're jumping over like an armco barrier right now, looking like you're dressed from the thirties. You're holding mm -hmm. uh Oh my God. These are hilarious. What does your wife think of these? Uh, she loved them at the time. I don't know if she still loves them. I don't know if she looks <laughs> at, at them the that time, much anymore. But yeah, she she was all about that. She was ecstatic, and she was she was my girlfriend at the time. She was yeah, pretty yeah. excited about it. Oh man, uh, I'm glad that you know what I'm talking about because I was prepared I to share my screen. Because, like I said, man, I was going through your website last night perusing, and that that caught my eye. I'm like, wow. Not only does he look way younger, but these are hilarious. <laughs> so I needed to yeah, read those up. Yeah. Good. Um, I got a couple more for you, and I'll let you run. You were in a very stacked NASCAR Next class in 2013 and 2014, I believe. So some names that you were associated with. Jeb Burton, part-time Xfinity right now. Daniel Suarez, obviously, in the Cup Series. Chase Elliott, Gray Galding, Ben Kennedy, who's going to probably be running NASCAR in like five or ten years. Mm -hmm. Brett Moffitt, 
um, Ben Rose, Ryan Priest, Kenzie Rustin, who's Daniel Hamrick's wife, and there was a, a host of other drivers in there as well. Cameron Haley, I think. Mm-hmm. That is a stacked, stacked list of drivers. What was it like to be associated with them and also being in the NASCAR next class? Like, what comes along with that that we may not see? You know, at the time, it, it, it was. It was really special to see what NASCAR was doing, kind of taking that initiative and to, to get our faces out there a little bit more. And that's where it really helped. It was, it was again, being able to go to sponsors and saying potential sponsors, you know, whoever it may be, race teams for that, for that matter, and saying, look, I've been a part of the NASCAR Next program. NASCAR has kind of highlighted what, you know, their future stars of the sport that were voted in by a, by a panel. Um, that's where it was, was really helpful. It just presence, right. A little bit of exposure. And it was, I mean, it was a lot of kids that when you're around those guys, when you're around the chase Elliott's and the Daryl Wallace's and the, the Ryan Blaney's and those guys, they were also in the NASCAR next program. Um, mm-hmm. Those guys obviously get a lot of attention. And so you're, you're the same group as them. It, it was nice to be able to get that. Um, you know, we, we did some, some cool stuff throughout the program there. Uh, had a lot of good relationships within NASCAR where, where it helped pay off a little bit. Um, you, you know, you kind of call in favors as you needed to and, and everyone was willing to help out that. So yeah, it was, it was, it was special to be able to do that. And for the years that it lasted, you know, it was, um, it was special to be, be a, a part of it and to, to be kind of the face of that there. Um, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was good. It was fun. Some of the events that we went and got to do hanging out with those guys, getting to know them a little bit better and still having relationships with, with most of them. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, that's, that's kind of the takeaway from it for now, obviously, you know, some of them are, some of them have gone, you know, the chases and the, the Blaney's of the world, obviously you see what they're doing. And then there's some, it didn't pan out for, but you know, that's mm-hmm. not a result of the program or not. It's just kind of like we've been talking about here, the way things go. Um, yeah. but it, it definitely was a cool program to be a part of. Yeah, just circumstances happen for different people. At different Absolutely. Times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I don't think I've ever gotten an answer from you. So, you know, ARCA is a series where you have a lot of veterans. You have your Tim Richmonds, your Brad Smiths, who got his first top 10, by the way, this past week, which is awesome. Um, that is awesome. A lot of veterans that have been around for a long, long time in this sport and with ARCA specifically. And then as we've talked about, you have your young drivers that are, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, that they view it as nothing more than a stepping stone to get to trucks, Xfinity and cup, ultimately where they want to go. You're almost 30 at this point. Do you have any other national series aspirations in your future? Or are you perfectly content staying where you're comfortable, where you know, you can win races week in and week out and doing all the other things that you do on the side, getting your business degree, coaching, helping out the next generation of racers, or are you comfortable here in ARCA or do you have any aspirations to move up in NASCAR? No, I definitely have aspirations to move up. You know, I'd love to dabble in the truck or Xfinity series and competitive equipment, mm-hmm. mostly just to go see, you know, how, how it could go. I mean, I've always told people, look, if I can be, be a Matt Crafton or, or what Elliot Sadler was for years, that would be a dream come true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would say, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily have the aspirations to say look i'm going to go race cup and i'm going to be the next cup driver just because i don't know if that's realistic you know um but if i could get you know paid to be a driver at the truck or xfinity level i mean that would be great that would be it'd be yeah. awesome um if you know i could continue to be a driver that gets paid at the the arc level you know that's something that's that's been really good um i would definitely like the chance to prove myself at those next levels um, sure. and, and i think that's where the the desire would come from you just have to look at at the realistic like you said, the circumstances that you're put in and they're, they're available to, you you know, what's going to be most likely what's going to be available. And we'll see if those come along. 
have you had any conversations with Sinclair or Toyota, anybody to that nature? And, and ha- if you had those, have they gotten anywhere in terms of putting you in a truck to see what you can do or an Xfinity car or have you not really gotten there? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately this year with 2020 as it is, you know, this was yeah. kind of supposed to be the year that, um, the truck trucks became a little bit more likely. Um, actually right after Daytona, um, I, I know there was, there was a truck race. It was going to be, it was pretty much going to happen, um, over at KBM, which was, which was obviously really cool. Yeah. You know, it was kind of a collaboration between Toyota and Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Then, then COVID changed everything and that kind of, you know, disappeared. Unfortunately, we lost that opportunity, but maybe it'll happen again. Uh, like I said, it, it was going to happen. Um, it was pretty much set and set and done. And then things got mixed up, but that just shows me, Damn. Hey, it is there. The opportunity is there, but yeah, yeah, that was kind of my response too, yeah. <laughs> but it, is, it would it would have been really cool, but hey, you know what? Yeah. It came up once, maybe it can come up again. Yeah, hopefully next year if it comes up, you'll, you'll be that that more hungry to to get that truck and uh, run up front. That'd be cool to see. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we'll we'll see, man. We'll see what happens. Do you have anything else on your racing bucket list that you want to achieve before you hang up the helmet for good? In terms of places you want to race, accomplishments you want to have on your resume, like anything like that. Yeah, you know, there's there's bucket list races for me. Um, the 24 Hours of Daytona is one that I've always really, really wanted to do. You know, that might be realistic here in the next couple of years. Get with your uh, boy Jack Hawksworth. He can hook you up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He would be, <laughs> he, yeah, he'd be a good one to get involved with over there on that. Um, you know, the road racing side of things, you know, I'd, I'd like to get back and do maybe a little bit more of that, maybe try some different sports car stuff mm-hmm. or, or some MIMS and stuff. Uh, but like I said, I mean, I would love the, the opportunity to – to just see what I can do and then a, a competitive truck or, or a competitive Xfinity car. And just, you know, if, if I was able to go do that and then say, look, I was able to do it, I proved it to myself. Um, like I said, you know, when we started, I've, I've accomplished a lot or what, what I feel like is a lot at the, the level that I've been able to get to, you know, I mean, that's all I can do is work to the level that I'm at, right. Take the circumstances that I'm given and make the most out of it. And so far those circumstances have been racing at the, the ARCA level. Um, those are the opportunities that have come up and I feel like I have made the most out of those opportunities and, and hopefully we'll continue to as long as they're there. Um, and that's something I'm proud of. Last question for me. I can't let you go without talking a little bit of racing currently. So this seems to be the year knocking on wood here for you and the Arkham and series finally jiving together and getting that title. I know you're in, in a heated battle right now with Brett Holmes for the championship. You've won a handful of races this year. You're running up front every single week. Hopefully when the mechanical failures and being at the wrong place at the wrong time does not plague you as it has a couple times in the past few weeks. But are you feeling good about this finally being the year for you to for you to get that championship? Are you feeling okay about it? Yeah, I feel okay about it. I mean, we've gone through a really, really rough summer stretch. I mean, we have not performed the way that we wanted to through the summer here. We went to some of my best tracks. I mean, Kansas iowa michigan um and just completely under underperformed i mean didn't meet our expectations unfortunately gateway we had got gotten an accident there cost yourself a whole bunch and and i'd be i'd be lying if i said it wasn't frustrating you know we mm-hmm. were behind as a team we felt as as vms that we were we were way behind and we weren't competitive there for a little bit uh fortunately the last couple have been better you know we had decent speed at gateway we had really good speed at bristol i actually thought we we had a car capable of winning there um uh-huh. got caught up in someone else's mess and, and winchester we run good you know running second there so um we've been able to turn it around a little bit and get our setups better get the cars a little bit more drivable find a little bit more speed we're not where we want to be by any means and, and brett and them are you know they've had an awesome year um they've had a ton of speed throughout the middle of the year and they've been consistent so look 
if we can continue like we had the last couple of weeks, then I, I know we can go compete and we can run up front. We've done it before and we can, but we've got to keep after it and keep finding a little bit more for these last three races. Um, because there was definitely a time there in the middle of it where I said, look, we're, we're, we're not a championship team. We're not mm-hmm. as competitive as we should be. We just don't have the speed to be, but, but it wasn't for a lack of effort. You know, everyone's tried and it's, it's started to pay off a little bit the last couple of weeks. We just, we've got to keep trying. Well, and Michael, then, you, you know, had if we a... do, then it, maybe it'll, I, I hope it'll come together. That'd be nice. Well, Michael, you've had a hell of a career as we've discussed. You're having a hell of a year. You're a hell of a dude. And uh, I wish nothing more than success for you in the future and to hoist that ARCA title trophy this year. So best of luck moving forward. I know that um, whatever happens, you'll do it with a smile on your face and you'll do it with class and integrity. And I thank you very much for your time today. I kept you way too long, but it was fun getting to learn a little bit more about you and, and rehash some fun memories. So thank you, man. Yeah, man. Absolutely. No, thanks for thanks for all the time. I appreciate it. Always, always good to answer some different questions and have a little bit different conversation out there. So yeah, I appreciate it. It was good. You got it, man. Hopefully see you sometime soon at the track. Sounds good. And we're back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I know it was a bit of a longer one. I was debating breaking it up into two parts, but I like to keep one-parters here on Victory Land unless it is so long that we got to. So Chase is a two-parter. Michael Self, really appreciate his time. Appreciate Venturini Motorsports and Nick Monter over there for coordinating the conversation. Uh, did not disappoint for sure. And be sure to watch Michael try to go for that first career ARCA championship this weekend at Kansas. Speaking of Kansas, let's chat about it. I would say this is going to be like a typical mile and a half race, which it still kind of is probably going to be. But Kansas as a track has been pretty racy as of late in the past couple years. And I think that this is going to be a race where the non-playoff guys are actually going to be pretty quick. You got Ryan Blaney in the mix, Eric Jones in the mix, Matt Benedetto in the mix, Kyle Busch in the mix, for goodness sake. And Kyle used to hate this place, but he finally got the monkey off his back, and he's been pretty good in the last few years at Kansas, so I would not be surprised to see him win. But also, he says that he's not capable of winning a race this year, so we'll see. KFB going to KFB. I feel like part of it also is just going to be the typical Harvick and Hamlin show that we're used to seeing this year and on mile-and-a-half tracks. But you could argue that this is not only the biggest race of the round, but this is one of the biggest races of the season. Why? Because if you win and you're a playoff guy, you don't have to worry about Texas. You don't have to worry about Martinsville. All you're doing is prepping your car, your body, your mind, your team for the championship race in Phoenix. And I'm sure some guys have already began prepping, specifically the 11 and the 4 teams. But still, if you win this race, you get to prep for Phoenix and not worry about anything else in the world. And that would be huge. Alex Bowman ran well here, I think, last time. Denny Hamlin won the race earlier this year, followed by Brad Kozlowski, Truex, Kevin, Harvick. They were the top four there earlier this year. I'm excited to see how this plays out. I think it's the first time Kansas in the playoffs has not been under the lights, maybe ever, but definitely in a while. Sunday, 2.30 p.m. Eastern time on NBCSN. That's the green flag for you. Xfinity's in action on Saturday. Trucks is in action on Friday, as well as ARCA, their championship race. Michael Self, Brett Holmes, they're going for the title. Tune in to all those respective networks to see the action. Look, nuts of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. Not too much to touch on this week. We had some more silly season stuff break. So I don't think I told you guys, but Alex Bowman's going to the 48. So we know that. 
Matty D, he's going back to the 21 for one more year. Then Austin Sindrick's going to slide into that seat in 2022. And Sindrick is also going to make some limited cup starts in 2021 for Team Penske. Daniel Suarez is going to the 99, the new formed team track house with Justin Marks. Brandon Jones, we thought that he may be going to the 96 in Gaunt Brothers Racing, but he's going to be back at Joe Gibbs Racing for another year on the 19 car. Zane Smith, he's returning to GMS Racing in the Truck Series, and there will be more to come very soon. We still don't know who's going to drive the 43. We still don't know who's going to drive the 32. We still don't know who's going to drive the 37. We still don't know who's going to drive the 96. Eric Jones is out there. Corey LaJoy is out there. Ty Dillon is out there. There is still a lot of moving parts and pieces yet to be determined, but I'm sure that we'll find out soon. And oh, by the way, that guy who's killing it on dirt right now, his name rhymes with Mile Harson. Yeah, he's probably going to Hendrick. That's what everybody's saying. And we don't know if he's going to be in the 88, the 25, the 5, whatever. But I assume that once Bowman and Elliott are eliminated, whenever that is, that is when they will probably announce Larson to him. Matt McCall was fined $10,000 for a loose lug nut. That is the only penalty post-Charlotte Roval across the Cup and Xfinity Series. I want to give a call to Sam Mayer as well. He won the Arkham Menard Series East race at Five Flags Speedway in Pensacola. And by starting the race, he clinched the Arca East Championship. So their slate was six races. Sam won five of them, finished second in the one race he didn't win. That was Ty Gibbs. And I did the math. He led a little over 34% of the laps run in 2020 in that series. Nuts. Back-to-back championships for him and GMS Racing, him and Marty Lindley. Now put in a request with GMS to hopefully get Sam on the podcast so we can not only discuss his season, but also him in general because really interesting guy and i think we're going to be hearing a lot about him for years and years to come that'll wrap things up for episode 77 hope it wasn't too long for you guys uh it probably was sorry uh of victory lane 2.0 please leave a rating and review uh subscribe to this podcast we're available on itunes spotify google Podcasts, soundcloud usually wherever you get your podcasts and consume them we should be available there for you as well and if we're not drop me a line i'll try to rectify that issue for you Until next week, do I know who we're going to have on yet? I do not. Is it going to be somebody? I sure as hell hope so. Stay safe. Stay inside. Keep washing those hands. Enjoy Kansas. And I'll catch you on the flip side.